0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Trap Rock 101 podcast from Pirates and Poets. I am your host, John Burns. Uh, Thank you for joining us. I am super excited about this episode. It features an interview with my good friend, Melanie Howe of Drop Dead Dangerous. Percussionist extraordinaire. We have a a fun conversation, talk about a lot of different stuff, um, and really focus on Melanie. I will talk more about that in a minute. Um, But first, I want to remind you that... uh, We are still in the middle of the COVID-19 quarantine semi-shutdown. Life is super hard on all of the artists that Pirates and Poets works with, which means life is getting pretty hard on Pirates and Poets itself, ourselves, however you want to put it. Um, If you are so inclined to make a donation to help support Pirates and Poets and the Trap Rock 101 podcast, we would greatly appreciate it. Go to Piratesandpoets.net, click on the donate button, and you can uh, donate dollar five dollars ten dollars however much you want it will be greatly appreciated and help keep us afloat until things get back to normal whenever that's going to be you can also click on the uh, store tab and buy you some cool hats and t-shirts and stickers things like that all of that uh, goes to help keep us going so that we can continue to work for with your favorite artists including melanie Howe and everybody from drop dead dangerous now more about the interview um Melanie How is is best known as the percussionist and co-founder of Drop Bed Dangerous. Um, I like to describe Drop Dead Dangerous as like an uh, all-female Americana version of the White Stripes. Um, so it's the music they make is not really trap rock, but they are most definitely part of the trap rock community. They are a major draw, a major seller of tickets at events. Um, they tour all over the country from East Coast to West Coast, San Diego, Key West, New England, Seattle, everywhere. Um, in addition to her work with Mel, uh, with Drop Dead Dangerous, Melanie uh, also sits in and plays with all kinds of folks. She kind of broke in to the trap rock world back in 2011, 2012 as a percussionist for uh, Southern Draw Band, and uh, quickly jumped into playing with lots and lots of folks uh, all over the country, but most especially in Key West. You'll hear her talk a lot about uh, the work she did at her first few meeting of the minds. To uh, really get well known uh, across the genre and across the community, uh, to to create connections with uh, other artists and events that have led to the level of success that she's enjoyed in the last few years, uh, it's it's important to remember that although trap rock is a kind of a laid back genre for the most part, um, the artists still work really really hard, and I think Melody is a real testament to that. Um. We also generally talk about her uh, her history in music, uh, both as a uh, teenager and college student, learning uh, music, learning to play, learning a lot of theory and composition. Um, she actually went to school f- uh, when she first started college. Melanie was studying music composition, which is kind of crazy. Uh, she's fancy. Anyway, I really hope you enjoy this. Uh, we talk a lot about the community, a lot of the, uh, the different people that Melanie's worked with in the past seven or eight years. That, to me, is the most amazing thing, is it feels like Melanie Howe has been around forever. And eight years is a pretty long time, but it feels like Melanie has been around just as long as Sunday Jim or Jerry Diaz or somebody like that. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this, uh, this episode. If you do, tell your friends about it uh share the link on Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff. And uh don't forget to find us online at uh net or troprock101.com. Uh we'll be back next week. Until then, enjoy my conversation with Melanie Howe.
1: Okay. Basically about how I got ri- how I got into the Troprock Rock community. Um I was playing a lot of local bars with several different musicians. Uh, in the Knoxville area, and I got to know an amazing man named Tall Paul, which I'm sure all of you guys know who Tall Paul is. Um, He allowed me to play some shows with him, and we had a few different combinations and collaborations, uh, one of which was pretty successful called The Hot Trio. And if you guys have not checked out The Hot Trio, we have a broadcast that um, happens every once in a while on PBS. And the Hot Trio consists of Tall Paul, Andy Wood, and myself. Uh, We recorded that, I think, back in 2012, maybe 2011. Um, It was pretty successful. Um, But other than that, I started working closely with him, and I noticed that he was traveling all across the United States playing for these groups called Parrot Heads. And I was like, tell me more about this. I know that when I was growing up, uh, my dad was a little bit of a parrot head. He listened to Jimmy Buffett and uh, Paul started telling me, well, it's more about, it's more about people who are like-minded and are playing um, music that fits that sort of lifestyle, not so much just a bunch of Jimmy Buffett cover bands. So I was really intrigued with this. And he started telling me about some of the festivals he was playing and at the time I started working pretty closely um, with a larger band that was um, eager to get on the road, and we traveled down to Meeting of the Minds. First Meeting of the Minds was 2012, and um, I had an opportunity to play with the band I was traveling with. But Tall Paul also encouraged me to go out and meet other musicians. Um, I met so many different musicians: Dusty Barber, John Patty, and the Big Bamboo. Band. um Yeah, we were just traveling around and these bands let me sit in with them. I met Brad Brewer, who's an amazing saxophone player. Actually, we ended up on a lot of shows. Brad and I ended up on a lot of shows together. And so we got pretty close that year. Um, but yeah, that was pretty much my introduction into the trop rock world. A warm welcome. And um, ever since been Traveling and working
0: the same circuits that he had always told me about. I uh I did not go to Meeting of the Minds for about three years there, like 2012 through 14, when my kids were real little. But oh. I remember I remember hearing about you. Like I, uh, you know, damn it, Earl and Jerry and everybody came home from 2012 Meeting of the Minds and they were like, "There's this chick. She plays congas." Bud Byron was was just all about you, of course. Oh, you know,
1: Bud. Um, <laughs> uh,
0: you know, uh. Good-looking lady who plays percussion. Bud was all about that right there. <laughs> uh, but I, but I remember everybody telling you know telling me all about you, and I was like, well, this is cool because at that point in time there were, I mean, not that there's a whole lot now, but back in that point in time, there were very few females involved in trap rock. Um,
1: there certainly were, and I think the only other female that was doing percussion at the time was Lindley Tolls.
0: Yes, yeah, and she so uh, was female. And Michelle Becker, of course, was, you know, oh, right. co co fronting Latitude. But those were probably the only females um that were that were heavily involved that on a national level at least. And uh so you were like, I guess in some ways, probably the third national level female to come into the community.
1: Um Wow, you know, I never thought about it that way. Um,
0: you know, Christy Bobble was around, of course, but I think at that point a lot of people, especially outside of Tennessee, probably didn't really think about her as a national level artist the way we do now, you know.
1: Oh my but, gosh,
0: uh, she's amazing. She is amazing, but uh, I, I just I don't think she was on that level, you know, nationally known at that point in time like she is now. So,
1: I was kind of lucky. I got quite a jump start by having my foot in the door with a handful of people that were already down there, and I worked really, really hard on my networking. I got um, affiliated with a group called Living Like a Pirate who um, they do a lot of like trop rock shirts and stuff like that. And they uh, were so kind of generous and um, sent me a lot of stuff to wear when I went down to Key West. And I mean, everybody was just so nice and welcoming. And then whenever I sat in with people, you know, they realized I was more than just some girl who's trying to weasel her way into a genre that um, I actually could play. So <laughs> that was, that was cool.
0: And. Uh- At some point, I think it might have been 2014, you were on the project. So what year was the Scott Nickerson show at the Bull and Whistle that you played on uh, that was that was supposed to be the original ending of the Parrothead movie?
1: Right. Um, I want to say that was either 2013 or 2014. I think I know it wasn't the first year had it in the second or third year, but that was such a cool experience meeting Scott Nickerson and what a great guy and what a talented guy and his story. I mean, if you guys have not seen the parrot ed movie, you've got to go back and watch it because it really tells an amazing story of what he'd been through and what he's overcome.
0: Yes. And uh, a soon to be released episode of trap rock one Oh one will feature Scott Nickerson. And he had a lot of great things to say about you, um, oh. As a as a drummer, and I think a lot of people uh forget that Scott is a drummer first and foremost. Um, that's yes. That's how he what he played as a young man and still plays. Uh but uh he had a whole lot to say about you and your percussion skills. So
1: that I is so sweet. I certainly had a great time performing with him and um actually it's pretty cool because in recent years I've seen him using the same cajon that I used by Gone Bops, he got an El Toro and he sounds fantastic on it. I've seen him um playing with Dave McKinney in the last year or so. Pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, I I think that was probably 2014 when y'all did that because Jerry played right. Jerry played on it, but I was yeah. not I wasn't there, so it had to have been like 2014.
1: Yeah, Jerry um, played on that too. That was fantastic
0: yeah and Scott told me that that was that was supposed to be the ending of the movie uh, uh, in, in, until he played with with Buffett the next year so Buffett was 2015 so I bet it was 14
1: well there are a few video clips of that event in the Parrothead movie so you don't miss out on it
0: <laughs> yes let's just go ahead and talk about that how did you end up in the Parrothead movie because I never thought about this like so your first real exposure to the greater community was 2012 you immediately jumped into the Parrothead. I mean, you had not been part of the community for very long at all when you got involved with that, the filming part of it at least.
1: So um, a lot of what helped propel me in the community was um, my social media marketing. So I was constantly on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Any way that I could reach out to other artists and promote what I did uh, you know, I guess I was just ready to get out of town <laughs> um, and and communicate with some artists that I had never met before. So um, I really did go out on a limb. I was playing with I, I was playing with Kelly McGuire, and I had barely knew him. I was doing a house concert in Atlanta with him, and then you know um, I did a whole cross country tour with Brittany Kingery and Rob Hill two years in a row. Um, a lot of what got me into the community was just getting putting myself out there um sitting in with bands you know in the first couple of years sitting in for free and really um standing my ground and proving my point that I'm here to stay
0: you you were here to stay you are here to stay <laughs> yeah <laughs> I I hadn't uh, I'd had forgotten that you uh that you toured with uh Brittany and Rob there for a couple years and that's probably the first time I actually met you when you guys came through T-Bone Toms
1: that you I'm know guessing. what that might have been it um I trying to remember when we met Tomboy.
0: the first time we worked a gig together was probably party Gras 15 but I think oh, yeah. I had met you before that so
1: yeah I was working uh I know it that party gras, I was working with a Several artists, again, a uh, country band I was playing in, also a project that I put together called Melligrass, and then um, I played with Kitty Steadman that year. That wasn't planned out, but she invited me up to play. Um, yeah, gosh, that was such a whirlwind. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, that was, yeah, that was the year we had uh, Melligrass played uh, the Thursday night post-King and Queen slot at Girl.
1: Yeah, upstairs at Top of the Trop
0: at top of the trap and then uh yeah and i'm just on behalf of party girl i'm going to say that you know drop dead dangerous was born on the street party stage
1: i think you're day. right
0: I, I think kitty's told me that y'all might have played together one time before that but uh i'm just going to say that drop dead dangerous was born <laughs> on the street party at party girl so <laughs> cuz that was uh that was the year that uh again that was the end of the 3 year run that i didn't go to meeting in the minds so i get home well, everybody else got home from Meeting the Mines and I get an email from Mary Diaz and it said, uh, JB, this girl named Kitty Steadman's going to uh, send you an email about her show at Party Girl. Take care of her. And I'm like, who is this person? Um, why? Why is she playing Party Girl? Why does Mary tell me that she's playing Party Girl and not Jerry? Um, <laughs> so I, I guess the way it worked out was uh, Mary and Danielle saw her playing in Key West at Meeting the Minds that year walked up and booked her for party girl there and then told Jerry what they had done.
1: So I was standing there when it happened. I was like, yep.
0: (laughs) But I think that was worked out pretty well for all of us. So
1: yeah, I think so too.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about drop dead. That was kind of, like I said, we're going to take credit. Party girl is going to take credit for drop bed starting (laughs) then and there. So how did all that get take took off?
1: Well, I think, there are a handful of parrots who were familiar um, at least in the southeast regions um, with my project melligrass I started that project uh, with the gentleman Mike Snodgrass so you can see where the name came from um, and we were doing a lot of regional work and branching out and um, at one point um, he, he had some changes in his life and he wasn't able to travel anymore so and I didn't want to give up on the traveling. I, I loved what I was doing. And, um, so he, you know, he decided to let go of some of the shows that we had. And I had worked with Kitty here and there, just a few shows. And I reached out to her and I said, Hey, uh, I know that some of the parrot heads are familiar with who you are. And I, my partner has had to cancel on me. So would you be interested in maybe filling in a few of these dates? And obviously I had to contact these festivals and say, Hey, you're not getting the same product. This is not Mellagrass. This is, um, you know, the Jim babe and Kitty Stedman." but I know you guys are familiar with Kitty and everyone was so receptive to it. They were cool with it. So we hit the road and filled out some of those dates, um, got back to town and, Kitty was like, well, what are we going to do next? And I just was so unsure. I didn't know. But one thing I did know was that she was a hard worker and that she really wanted to play with me. And I thought, you know, let's just see where this goes. Let's start. Let's pick up on some touring. And we just went under the two of our names. Um, And we were down in Key West, uh, local there, Rick Fusco. If you guys don't know Rick Fusco, you've got to meet the guy. Fabulous guitar player. Good friend of ours. Uh, he had us come sit in on one of his performances and when he introduced us, he said, you guys got to hear these ladies, you know, my friend Melanie and Kitty and, uh, these girls are just drop dead dangerous. And then we looked at each other and we're like, that's it. That's our band name.
0: <laughs> you stole my question. Cause I don't know that I've ever heard that story before. I was going to ask you where the name came from. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. I always like clever band names instead of just going under individual names. Um, so I was pretty thrilled when that happened. We always like to credit Rick on that, um, just off the cuff, kind of perfect description of who we are.
0: Drop dead dangerous, okay. and and things. When, so when was that time timeframe?
1: Um, that was within the first six months of us working together. I'd say.
0: Okay, we've I been
1: don't... playing together for five years.
0: Yeah. I don't remember you guys ever, I mean, I know you did, but I don't remember it ever being billed as Kitty Stedman, Melanie Howell, Kitty Stedman, Jim Babe. So.
1: Yeah, it was a brief time period for sure. Um, we started working together and we really just, you know, when we saw how well we clicked together, we dove in head first and um, Kitty realized that I used to write my own music and she encouraged me to get back into that and she's been um very patient in helping me get back into my songwriting and including me as a co-writer on everything that we do together. So we are definitely a team and nobody splits us up.
0: Nope.
1: <laughs> Just this interview split us up.
0: Just this interview. Yes.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. And drop dead y'all. Uh, one of the things I wanted to, to talk about with you uh, regarding drop dead during this is the pretty unique, uh, take y'all have on recording, especially in this day and age, um, the way you record and the fact that you're not really willing to deviate from the way you record. If you want to talk about that, so. uh,
1: we are very serious about the way we record. Um, it's common these days to use a room as small as my studio to record entire bands, but everything's tracked and done one at a time. And for us, uh, we like to perform as a unit. So trying to figure out how to do that was a little tricky at first, but then we realized, you know, back in the seventies, that's how bands recorded. They would just use isolation booths. Um, you know, maybe set a click in your headphones and you would play your song. You would be the artist on there. Um, you wouldn't believe how many times somebody will put an album out and the only thing they've done on it is sing. they hire someone to play their guitar. They hire in, a studio bassist, a studio drummer, and we're just not about that. We're a lot of what you hear is what you get. So if you get a Drop Dead Dangerous CD, um, what you're hearing is the same thing that you're going to hear whenever you're out live, just with a cleaner quality. And you might hear some tracks that are Kitty and myself, Drop Dead Dangerous, or you might hear some tracks that feature Brad Brewer, Paul Ray, Larry Dunsmore, J.D. Edge. And when we add them, that's called Drop Dead Dangerous Loaded. So you're going to get the actual performers in what you hear, the music we put out.
0: Yeah, it's a very kind of old school style. um,
1: Absolutely. And it's difficult, but it's worth it.
0: Yeah. And you guys do not overdub at all, correctly?
1: We don't overdub, no. Everything is done live.
0: Yeah, I think a lot, a lot of the big albums, you know, back in the seventies, uh, Born to Run, Hotel California, Rumors, all that. They did, they, they, they did what you guys did. They recorded, you know, everybody kind of live, but then they often came back in and fixed a few things or overdubbed, you know, more guitars, that kind of stuff. So yeah, we. Are-
1: We don't add anything. I guess I should be very specific on this, though. The only thing that we go back and change or overdub are the vocal tracks because Kitty's playing a guitar and singing at the same time, and there's what's called bleed over into the microphones. So if you wanted to bring the voice up in the mix a little bit, you're inevitably bringing the guitar up. Or when I'm singing and playing drums, it's even more difficult because the drums are all going into my vocal mic as well. So we will go in. And lay down our vocals after the we 've recorded live
0: got gotcha. you, that makes sense, especially for the drums, oh yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I can just imagine you in a little isolation room with all your drums, and i'm going to guess you probably have more even more stuff in a studio than you do live
1: actually i don't bring more than what i mean there's more microphones on me absolutely yeah, okay. to pick up all the different tones. But I don't bring in any instruments that I don't perform on the stage.
0: Cool. And uh, the last album, uh, Roadside Attraction, was recorded in Key West, um, which is pretty, I guess, Key West is a pretty important place for the Drop Dead Danger story, but at Jimmy Buffett's Shrimp Boat Sound Studios.
1: Yes, that was quite an experience. Um, We had Chris Stone as our uh, sound engineer, and we had J.L. and his whole Jameson crew helping out. Um, I'm, I felt like I didn't have to lift the finger the whole time I was in there unless I was playing drums. <laughs> it was fantastic. It was a great experience. It is a small studio space, but they did have enough isolation booths for all of us because it's set up as a 70s style recording.
0: Yeah, I've actually seen some videos uh, of the Coral Reefer Band in there. And I think they do something pretty similar to y'all. They're so big that, of course, they come in and add some stuff. But I think the core, you know, rhythm section does record uh live. Uh I love like that does. Awesome. Yeah. So I want to go back and talk about the touring more. You uh you are one of a handful of artists I know that are just complete road dogs in this community. <laughs> um I mean uh from a time I've known you or even known of you before I knew you personally, you know, you've been touring with with all kinds of folks. Uh just talk about that and how important that that is to you to be on the road?
1: Um, I really do love the change of scenery. And I think that uh, we have a beautiful country and the other countries I've been to are beautiful as well. Um, But I've mostly traveled through the United States um, quite a bit, performing with lots of different acts. I actually had a couple of summers where I was out on the road for over 200 days (laughs) on the road, solid between three different bands before ever coming home. So that was, um, that one was pretty tough. I um, I learned really how to pack and manage a suitcase because you don't want to bring too much, but you always get tired of your clothes part of the way through. <laughs> uh, you learn uh, what's practical and not practical to bring with you. Um, you learn when to speak up and when to keep your mouth shut on the road. Uh, cause everybody has different personalities and everybody has good days and everybody has bad days. So, uh, really being in tune with how your bandmates feel on certain days, giving each other quiet time is really important. Um, making sure that you pay attention to what you're eating. It's very, very difficult. Um, I'm very, very easy to go into a, convenience store and get some junk food and just kind of live off of that Um, but it's so bad for your health and it will fatigue you when you're you know performance demanding so paying attention to things like that are very important for your physical health and your mental health checking in with your family I can be bad about that sometimes Um, I did a couple of tours where every town I played I would pick up a postcard And I would write about how the show went and mail it to myself. And so I have like these books of postcards from all these different towns. And, you know, I'd write the good, bad, ugly, beautiful parts that happened so that I can go back and be like, oh yeah, that day was like this and that day was like that.
0: Oh wow, that's a pretty cool idea.
1: Something that kind of would keep me sane, just being able to essentially journal and send it back to myself. It's kind of cool.
0: Gotcha. And. Explain how important touring is from a professional standpoint, from a revenue standpoint,
1: um, versus,
0: versus just playing, you know, in your hometown or even, you know, within a couple hours of your hometown.
1: Absolutely. Um, it, it is important, especially for bands at our level to do that because say we're playing Knoxville and we want to play four nights a week. Um, our audience is very limited to the people who are in Knoxville. Now we can draw a big crowd when we're here in town, but if you go to see the same act, even if they're putting on different performances, the same act, you're not going to go four nights in a row. You're going to want to go see this other band or you want to go to a movie or, you know, something else. So being able to travel and reach, um, larger platforms is very important, um, to your fan base. So.
0: Yeah. And more fans, the more money you make.
1: Yes, that's true. <laughs> the more also, merch you
0: sell.
1: Yeah, and the more merch you sell. Um, a lot of times, um, it's sorry. A lot of times, it's better um, too because if you're playing the same venue over and over and over, they're probably just going to pay the same amount. Whereas if you are traveling, you might be able to make a little bit more money uh, from the venue or in the tip jar. And like you said, the merch is important as well.
0: So, let's talk about the fact that, t- to me, you are a uh, a Knoxville person, an East Tennessee girl, um, but I know a big part of your heart and your history is in the Siesta Key area of Florida, so walk us through all that.
1: Um, well, I was originally born in Clearwater, Florida, and I, but I spent most of my growing up um, up here in the Knoxville area, and... Um, Went to high school here, went to college at the University of Tennessee, uh, pursued my percussion performance degree after I switched from uh, music composition. And after that, I um, was a ballroom dance teacher. And I wanted to move back down to Florida, but I wanted to continue teaching dance. Um, I kind of put music on the back burner a little bit as far as performance And, um, the dance partner I was working with at the time, let me know that Sarasota, which is, um, Siesta Key is a barrier island off of Sarasota. Um, Sarasota was a big hub for ballroom Latin and swing dance competition. So I thought, well, that's where I really want to be in the heart of it. So I worked at two different ballroom dance studios and then I bartended at night. Um, to kind of compensate for the move. And I made a lot of friends and a lot of connections, um, whereas bartending was a siesta key at a place called Gilligan's. And uh, we, we still go back there and play all the time, which is pretty cool because they make a big deal. of. They're like, Melanie's home, and they pack the place out. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's a really special place to me. I ended up moving back to Tennessee for um, – some of the musical aspects of what I was doing and some changes I was making when I was starting to tour more. And, um, but I go back and visit, I mean, in the, uh, almost once a month, I'm, we're down there playing in the area and we've got a pretty good fan base. Um, Sarasota area, Punta Gorda, Tampa. We have a lot of people who come in to see us, but I've got family down there. My grandfather lives in St. Pete. Um, my father and my brother live in Sarasota. So it's, it's always great to be down there.
0: And that kind of ties into we talk about, uh, you attended the university of Tennessee and majored in percussion, something and, uh,
1: percussion performance,
0: percussion performance. So yeah. I want to hear a little bit about, you know, how, growing up when you started playing, um, you were in music composition at one point and, and moved over to percussion. Just kind of t- tell us about, you know, uh, teenage and college years as far as music went and everything.
1: Sure. Uh, my oldest brother was a piano player um, when we were young. He's four years older than me. Um, he, he was taking piano lessons, and I was really into that. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I would really love to play piano. I, you know, I always wanted to do everything my brothers were doing. So um, I got into piano lessons when I was nine years old, and I pursued that for several years. I love playing piano. Um, and when I got into middle school, they gave us an option to um, join a concert band. And I thought, wow, okay, I'm really enjoying playing music. I'd like to do this. Well, they don't have piano in concert bands. So um, basically in my school, I, know, I now know that this is kind of messed up. In my school, the teachers would select what instrument you were to play. You didn't decide for yourself. (laughs) So um, I played clarinet for three years, middle school. Um, Went into high school, and I played clarinet the first year there, but I also was allowed to play piano in the symphonic band. So that was kind of cool. Concert band, I did clarinet. Marching band, I did clarinet. Symphonic band, I played piano. And then after that, I moved into brass. Um, I was really intrigued with trumpet for a brief amount of time until I moved to mellophone, which ended up being my marching instrument all the way up until college. Um, But I was very, very into the arts going through high school. I still played piano. I um, got a job working as a woodwind technician. So I repaired woodwind instruments after school um, at a company called Lunsford's. And, um, I was playing in the concert symphonic and marching band. And then I joined the indoor drum line starting <laughs> on the keyed instruments and then moved into drums. Then, uh, when I went to college, I knew that, um, it was going to be tough to pay for college. So, um, I went in on the audition days and I knew, you know, I was probably decent at a handful of instruments, but I wasn't a master at any of them in particular. So I went in every day of auditions um, on every instrument I could play. No matter how rough it was, I would go in and do the sight reading. I would learn the piece. I think I auditioned on six instruments before uh, the director of music took me aside and was like, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, well... I thought that if I just tried tried out on all of them, maybe I'd have a shot at something. And so um, I got a music scholarship to UT. Uh, it didn't cover everything, but it did cover quite a bit. Uh, the only thing was I had to be in all of these ensembles, and it was kind of weighing on me <laughs> to be in all these le- different lessons and ensembles and then still take the um, other education courses I needed. So um, after that, I had decided to major in um, music composition because of my knowledge and all the different instruments. I wanted to write movie scores was kind of my dream. Um, Unfortunately, the only instructor at UT, um, he did not agree with my style of writing, and we butted heads a lot. And maybe one day when I have more time to talk, I'll tell you a story about how I exited that program. (laughs) It was definitely a Melanie Howe move. (laughs)
0: <laughs> sounds like that might be a late night drinking crowd story. Oh right? yeah.
1: It's, it's a pretty good one. Um, but I exited that program and joined the percussion performance program. So I was able to drop, um, all the woodwind and brass stuff I, I was doing and focus in on percussion, which is what I was really in love with. So I went into a jazz drum set with Keith Brown. I loved my lessons with him. I studied, um, under a handful of different percussion per- professors they were all kind of trading out at that time um but yeah i was i was in all things percussion
0: <laughs> all things percussion yes so it's, at what point did you like start playing in bands like gigging bands not not the marching band not the ut but like you know a drop dead dangerous um, type restaurant bar gig band
1: well there's nothing like drop that dangerous you know <laughs> Nothing at all. Um, I started to kind of uh, get into it when I was a freshman in college. Um, My college is located just outside of an area they call The Strip, which has a whole bunch of bars and restaurants, and all of them had live music every night. Um, It's back before the DJ scene really took over. It was all live music. And, of course, I would sneak into all these places. Sorry, Mom. And just to go watch all the live music and I really wanted to get into it. So I started putting my name out there much like we talked about in the trop rock world. Um, as far as, Hey, you know, I, I play drums and I would love to maybe sit in with your band one night. And, um, so I would, I'd pick up gigs with different, um, bands that were playing out there. I'd pick up percussion and drum set. Um, I played a lot of frat parties. <laughs> um, yeah, just that's kind of how it picked up. Um, I knew that I was absolutely in love with auxiliary percussion, but playing drum set also kind of helped supplement some income. Um,
0: yeah. And uh, was it always kind of – it's Knoxville, Tennessee, and I've never been there, but I can guess that it's mostly country, southern rock, pretty I- –
1: You'd be surprised. There was actually a big phase of heavy rock. I wouldn't say metal, but heavy rock through Knoxville was very popular. There were several bands that came out of here. Um, also, Americana, um, country bluegrass, obviously, but it's not, um, it's a different animal than Nashville. There's gotcha. a lot of variety.
0: So, and while we're talking about Knoxville, uh, Tall Paul and I talked about this. I think that it is. Really, really interesting that so much, so many acts that are important uh, in the history of the trap rock genre or trap rock community have come out of Knoxville and East Tennessee, starting with St. Somewhere, you know, uh, of course, Tom Paul, who's, I guess, more based out of Nashville but plays in Knoxville a lot, which I, didn't, I thought he lived in Knoxville until very recently.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, a lot of people thought that he did because <laughs> he performs here like every week. Yeah,
0: but you got southern. Uh, well, you have southern draw. You have Saint mm-hmm. somewhere.
1: Homemade wine.
0: Homemade wine. Now drop dead dangerous. Like it's it, Florida makes sense for a bunch of trap rockers. Texas coast it's in makes water. a fair. Yeah, it's in the water. Okay.
1: The
0: <laughs> is, is there salt in the Tennessee River, or is that the Tennessee River?
1: Yes, it is. The Tennessee
0: okay. River. Yeah. So I mean, that, it's crazy to me that that much. So many important people in this community have come out of that you know, area that you just don't expect it to come out of.
1: It's been discussed a lot. And there's actually a couple of solo artists who kind of were in the trop rock scene here and there. Like Jason Ellis kind of popped in Kate Oliver kind of popped in. Um, so it's, it's interesting the way it's worked out how well trop rock and I don't know, salty country, maybe.
0: <laughs> yeah. Salty country. Um, has
1: been accepted.
0: <laughs> Does Quincy still live in, in East Tennessee?
1: He does. Um, Quincy and his wife own a really cool shop close to downtown called Amy's Boutique. And it's like this really cool hippie shop. That's where I got my steel pan tuned, actually. It was over at Quincy's.
0: Oh, I mean, and, and that's probably the wildest thing of all is that this, uh, this, uh, black guy from the Caribbean still pan extraordinaire is in East Tennessee. That's Oh
1: my gosh, I know.
0: Yeah. (laughs) It's just not what you expect, you know. So
1: Yeah. And he's a definitely a Knoxville staple.
0: Yes. Uh you know, I don't know that I've ever met him in person. Um, Really? Yeah. He uh Ramaj came down here a few years ago, but I was I was out of town with Jerry or with the kids or something, so I didn't get to Uh, I, I I honestly, maybe I have late night somewhere and I don't remember it, but I, I don't think I've ever met Quincy. So
1: he's a very interesting and, um, intelligent, incredible person to talk to. I highly recommend it.
0: Yeah. One of my uh, dream shows I'd like to put on one day is, um, Quincy, Mark Morales and your buddy, John Patty, like pan battle.
1: Oh my goodness. But you know, they are all three way different styles. So it would be hard to decide the winner of that battle.
0: Well, you don't really have to have a winner. The the crowd is the winner. They're getting to watch it.
1: You're right.
0: (laughs) But yeah, that's, that's kind of been one of my bucket list shows to put on one day. And the funny thing is, is Donnie, Donnie and I were drunk one night and he was like, Oh my God, I've been thinking about the same thing. So sooner or later, Donnie and I are going to make it happen. (laughs) Maybe, I don't know, maybe you and Paul or you and Paul and Larry or somebody could be the backing. Rhythm section for that show you know, so. <laughs> so uh okay i think I think that wraps up the, all the Knoxville related questions. Um, you have excelled and you talked about living like a pirate um, when you first got into the scene. you have excelled at, in getting endorsements uh, from all kinds of different companies so what's the i mean you 're a hair model <laughs> I mean, it's, how did yeah. you develop that skill set? <laughs>
1: Um, well, the hair modeling thing is not a skill. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, the hair modeling thing, um, kind of happened randomly. I was bartending, um, at uh, an Arabic bar in downtown Knoxville. And this man came up to me he's like, my wife would love your hair. Oh my gosh. And I'm like, okay, creep. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Is, uh, sure. Shit. The next day he brought his wife in and she was like, oh my God, I love your hair. She offered me a free haircut that's how she sneaked me in there. And then she was like, I'm doing this fashion show. Would you be willing to, I mean, and it's just gone on since then. I've, I have no choice of what my hair is. She chooses it all the time and I just take care of it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen you twice with the, with the same hair color twice in a row.
1: Well, she is a true artist, and I'm lucky to be her canvas. Uh, Regina Zalk at Beleza is amazing. Um, As far as my endorsements go, in the musical world, I was originally approached um, first by Vader Drumsticks. They saw, again, social media. I was posting a lot of the shows I was performing. They noticed I was playing with lots of different artists and that I was – really starting to pick up and travel and that I was a little bit of a personality when it came to social media, instead of just saying, Hey, here's where I'm playing. uh, I was always interacting with my fans and trying to put new material up daily. um, And one of the things I would say is, Hey, these are the products I'm playing for anybody who's curious. So um, Vader drumsticks reached out to me they're like, Hey, we really like what you're doing. We like the direction of your marketing for yourself Um, We think it's cool that you're an independent. Uh, Would you be interested in joining the Vader family? And of course, after I jumped up and down and screamed and hollered, composed myself, I was like, yeah, we should talk business. (laughs) (laughs) I was so excited. That year they invited me to PASIC, which is the Percussive Arts Society International Convention. And I had been before in college but I had never gone as an artist. And so getting to go to a major percussion convention as a big dog was pretty pretty amazing for me. And um, it went so well there that they invited me out to the NAMM show. Um, and it's the uh, National Association of Music Merchants. So it's basically PASIC, but for all musicians. They've got... Uh, vendors and clinics and uh, you get to meet different artists. I got to go out there to Anaheim um, and be an artist there. And it just blew my mind that I was getting to meet a lot of these drummers that I was looking up to my whole life. And I was having dinner with them now. It was quite a step. And um, Vader was very encouraging. They've put me in all of their catalogs since um, I've become an artist and they've done a great job at helping cross promote um, on their website and on their social media. So I'm very grateful for them. They are my original music endorsement family, Um, but they encouraged me. They're like, go out there and talk to these other companies. And so I just showed a lot of face um, at these different booths. Um, I talked to artists who were already Vader artists and maybe they were connected with another company that was interested in. Um, and so slowly and it just started developing as they would get to know me and much like getting into the trop rock world, they would realize, oh, this girl is going to show up and this girl can actually play. So we want to be on her team. And since then, um, I've gotten endorsements from 64 audio, which is my in-ear monitors that I use on the big stages, uh, Remo drum heads, and they outfit all of my drums, um, Sabian cymbals, which I've been playing since day one, and uh, Gonbop's percussion, which that was uh, that was a challenging one at first, but um, I'm really lucky to be a part of their family now.
0: You have so many drums. So, uh, I, folks are listening to this just audio, but you and I uh, can see each other on video, and you have uh, I see at least four congas behind you. Um,
1: This isn't even half of them.
0: (laughs) Uh, Here, as someone who has uh, carried your gear in and out of venues on many occasions, you have a lot of stuff.
1: I do, but the thing is, um, we are dedicated to every single show and producing quality sound. If I showed up with just one or two little things and that's not what you heard on the album, then I would be letting the audience down. And I don't care how big or how small the audience, I'm there to deliver a show and make people happy. And so if it means we have to haul a little bit of extra gear, then by golly, that's what we're going to do.
0: Yes. And you can make so many sounds. Um, with the, the kit that you use now, you basically have two different, um, in in a regular band, it would be two different kick sounds. You know? Yes. The, the cajon and the djembe that... Uh, really fucks with sound guys heads <laughs> <laughs> it's taken me like two and a half years to, to go oh yeah this is she wants it to sound that way
1: yeah um, um, because of the combinations of sounds that I create um, in our music I have a few different setups and styles in which I play so it does require two different kicks
0: <laughs> yeah and that kit you're playing right now it's probably like three different things in one, maybe even four. I don't know. You're the percussion expert, but
1: <laughs> um, it's definitely a collaborative instrument. Um, uh, right now, my setup consists of the 18 inch djembe kick that you were talking about and um, an El Toro Cajon from Gone Box. I also play um, two tumbas, but I tur- I tune one of them up to a conga tone. Um, so that they have that low end resonance. We've got a hi hat, crash, ride, a couple of different pedals. Where I have um, tambourine, cowbell, um, some mounted instruments. The list goes on.
0: <laughs> it's a lot.
1: Oh, my little timbale snare, which I oh, I'm glad I thought about that. I need to change the head out before we do our live stream tonight.
0: <laughs> I would encourage folks if they are at a drop dead dangerous show, and there is a Uh, a way that they can kind of stand to the side or behind you for a song without actually getting on stage. Do not get on stage. You'll get your ass kicked. (laughs) But if there's a way for you to stand to the side or behind Melody for a song and watch all the stuff she does, it's pretty mind blowing. Um, Even as much as I've seen it in the last few years, sometimes it still kind of impresses the hell out of me.
1: Well, I like to always be developing and changing things up so that I'm always growing and getting better. Because it's no fun to just stay the same all the time.
0: Yep. I mean, you do that. If, if I go six months without doing a show with you guys and then I show up, there's usually something new.
1: Like, <laughs> yeah,
0: That wasn't there six months ago. So <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Trap Rock world, the community, and some of the people and places and events that, that you really love. And I'll let you just run with that if you want to. Um, you know, events, venues, your favorite musicians and songwriters to work with. I just want to hear you talk about the, the community some.
1: Okay. Um, so in the Trap Rock community, one thing that's so, so wonderful is that some of these venues are also where we get to stay. So playing house concerts is really cool. You set up, um, you've got a really cool stage and setting and someone's in or outside of someone's home and uh, you get to play the fans come out, and they're bringing all kinds of delicious food and cool drinks and Then, at the end of the night, when the concert's done, if we don't have to hit the road, we end up crashing there and get to spend time with some cool people like you know, like Bart Mason or Kevin and Tish distant or i mean um heather Settlemy- Heather and Ken Settlemeyer, like lots of cool venues all across the country um. I think house concerts are probably one of my favorite things. And if I had to pick, Ooh, if I had to pick one house concert venue, I'd probably have to go with Casa Tortuga because they've got a really nice swimming pool <laughs> <laughs> and really comfy beds. And also, uh, San Diego I mean, it's in San Diego. So the weather there is just always perfect. And we usually stay a day or so. And, um, go out surfing with our friend Chris Tyner. She'll take us. She's got a bazillion surfboards, so, and I'm really into water sports, so that's kind of a push for me. Um, As far as festivals go, um, it's kind of difficult to nail that down because I feel like no two festivals are really the same. Um, In the beginning, I really, really enjoyed Meeting of the Minds, but because everything in town is so close together and it's difficult to get between stages because of parking stuff like that it it gets a little hectic not that I dislike it by any means but learning about some of these other festivals has been cool like um, another one that's kind of tricky on parking is party gras, but it's always worth it even though there's tight quarters one year it rained on us on bourbon street and somehow my van doors got left open that was stressful (laughs) <laughs> uh, it's always a good time. And then at the end of the day, when everybody goes out, oh my gosh, there's no party quite like party girl for sure.
0: <laughs> um, no, there's not
1: the summer solstice festival and the Ozarks is quite beautiful too. It's right there. Um, on, in the, on the Ozark, I guess that's the Lake Ozarks. I don't know what you call it. I think <laughs>
0: it's like, uh, yeah, I think Lake, it's like the Ozarks. Yeah.
1: Lake of the Ozarks. Um, that's amazing. They've got two really cool stages and it's right there at where you would stay. They've got swing sets at the bar, which I love. And then there's paddle boarding right there on the lake after you get done, which is pretty awesome. Um, another one that really topped the charts for me, um, was the Island Fever Showcase. That was just an experience being able to perform at the surf ballroom on that stage. Was an absolutely surreal experience, and we are certainly looking forward to 2021 when uh, we get to do that again. Yeah.
0: Yes, um, by the time this goes out publicly, it will have been announced that.
1: I figured uh,
0: that Island Fever Showcase is uh, been postponed due to all the COVID madness, and uh, I'll be honest, my heart is broke a little bit.
1: Yeah, I had a I had a hard time dealing with that one, but uh, we got to stay positive because um, you got to keep putting that positive energy out there and supporting each other. You know, it's okay to get down for a little bit, but pick yourself up and dust yourself off and realize it's going to be okay.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's kind of a natural. Let's uh, I don't didn't don't want to dwell on COVID and quarantine and everything on like any of these interviews, but definitely had to touch on it. So let's talk about how you and Kitty and everybody else in Drop Bed Dangerous have been getting through the last few months?
1: Um, well, initially it was quite a shock when we saw the shows um, and the entire tours dropping off of our calendar. And I'm uh, not going to lie, it was pretty disheartening and stressful because of, um, maybe some people don't realize, but there's countless hours that go into phone calls, texts, emails, messages, coordinating with these venues, setting it up, making sure the pay scale is correct, making sure you have somewhere to stay, routing to see if the fuel budget allows for this show or that show. Um, It's, you know, it's hard for Kitty and I, but it's especially hard when there's four or six of us on the road for some of this stuff. Um, There's a lot to be managed. So yeah, that was disheartening. But uh, after we wiped our tears away and picked ourselves up, we realized, We've got to do something. We can't not play. We have to play for ourselves. We have to play for the fans. So like many of the other artists that you're seeing, we decided to start dabbling in live streaming and I'm not going to lie. It was, and still is, uh, quite the headache learning how to get ahead of the curve on some of this stuff. It's not as simple as setting up a phone for a band like us. You can't just set up a phone and expect it to work. Um, When it comes to drums, it can blast out microphones. Um, You know, having enough space. I don't really have enough space to set up a band in my house. So figuring stuff out like that um, was kind of tricky. We started out at an empty venue, the shed here locally. They were so kind to let us use their space. But as things were progressing and people weren't really allowed out in public as much. They had to shut their doors and I I know that they felt bad and were heartbroken because we were the only concert, you know, some of their staff got to see every week. So that was tough, but, um, we ended up converting my garage now (laughs) affectionately named the garage, (laughs) um, into a venue. So, um, basically we hung drop cloths from the rafters um, set up lighting on those, those metal things that you see in the background. It's just crumpled up screen. And I learned that from John Patty (laughs) and we just up light them. Uh, we have our banner hanging with a light behind it that changes. Uh, we also have lighting that's hung up to face the band so that our faces are lit. Um, And originally we were recording off of my laptop using the same microphone that I'm talking into right now. It's it's a Shure MV51. It has settings for um, speaking, acoustic instruments, or bands. So that's pretty convenient. As we were um, setting up sound and doing the whole thing as we would perform at a live show, that was important to us because we were seeing a lot of, which is not bad, we were seeing a lot of people with their guitars on their couch. And I think that there is absolutely a place for that. Just like anytime you would go and see a solo guy or girl playing at a smaller bar, there's absolutely a place for that. But we wanted to be us, be true to us. So we set it up like we're doing a concert. And um, we were also inspired to bring in um, a couple of local bartenders um, we had Megan Buzio and Kimberly Long from Soccer Taco and Wild Wing. Uh, they were out of work. And so we asked them, we're like, hey, why don't you come bartend our concerts? It'll be just, you know, just like you're at the bar and there's a band playing. Um, you know, we'll have some different liquors set up. We'll have ice. And um, we'll open up your tip jars, like your PayPal or Venmo. and uh, our fans." From all across the country can tip you to come bring the band a drink just like they would at a concert so that worked out so well that jack daniels fire saw what we were doing helping out our bartender friends and they're like we want in on this and so we collaborated with them for four weeks of our virtual concerts and um they um they sponsored four weeks of shows so that we could open up a tip jar and everything that came in for those four weeks went directly to the United States bartenders guild. So now we weren't just helping two of our local bartender buddies. We were helping bartenders all across the United States by performing once a week.
0: Cool. That was exactly. pretty cool. Yeah. And then you managed to get back out on the road for a couple of weeks, at least
1: a couple weeks. We did a brief Gulf coast Tour. Uh, I think it was like three weeks We performed in Alabama uh, Florida Louisiana And thanks to you Some shows in Texas um, And then we had to come back home And as soon as we got home We were notified that Florida and Texas shut down again <laughs> And I was like well at least we got that one then. Yeah
0: <laughs> drop bed dangerous is so dangerous That when they leave the bar is shut down <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm I'm glad that y'all got to get out and do that i know it was important to y'all both probably financially and um, mentally to get out and do what you do um
1: it was great
0: it was a wonderful 36 hour vacation for me to have y'all around
1: <laughs> and i'm sorry you didn't get to go to shorties
0: i know uh, yeah shorties
1: i felt so bad about that
0: <laughs> it happens so well hey um I'm going to wrap this up with some rapid fire questions, but before I go into that, do you have uh, any parting thoughts, things you want to share with folks?
1: Um, I guess the only thing I can really say is uh, try to stay positive. Make sure you watch your musician friends online. Those numbers really help with their mentality. Even if you can't go in there and throw money in the tip jar, just tune in and say, Hey, we really do miss having our audiences. We miss being able to talk to you guys on the break. We miss the applause. Um, it's, it's what we do and what we're used to. So um, you don't have to come watch drop dead dangerous. Watch any of your favorite bands. I know that they appreciate it.
0: Yes. And folks can uh, support drop dead dangerous. How?
1: Uh, Well, we do have a merchandise store on our website. If you just go to com slash store, that'll take you directly to um, our merchandise store. We actually have a garage tour T-shirt for sale right now. Um, It's it's like any other tour shirt except all the dates on the back say the garage. (laughs) (laughs) But it's kind of cute because it has the whole band in illustration performing uh, that was a really cool shirt to design. Um, yeah, merchandise sales always help. Streaming always helps. Showing up to our virtual concerts help. And, um, if you're feeling generous and you see the tip jar, throw a buck in. We do appreciate that.
0: I love the, uh, the cartoon animation on the garage tour t-shirt. Did your brother do that or did you use somebody else?
1: Unfortunately, so my brother does um, all of our graphic design work, but unfortunately he was so covered up and we needed something quick. Um, I contacted a friend of mine, his name is Matt Wantland, and he works for Black Sheep Printing here in Knoxville. And he set me up with their graphic designer, Jesse, um, and they were able to crank that out in just a couple of weeks. I was really impressed with what they did. If you guys haven't seen it, just go check it out on our website, or go to any of the bands' profile pictures, and you can see all of our profile pictures are our illustrations.
0: <laughs> it's awesome. So <laughs> thank you. Well, let's do the uh, let's do the rapid fire questions real quick. So okay. if you're ready, uh, I think
1: what's your I'm ready.
0: Favorite Jimmy Buffett song?
1: Um, Banana Wind.
0: Ooh, I like that. Uh, your favorite beach? And for you, I'm going to put in a disclaimer here. Favorite beach besides Siesta Key?
1: Dang it. Okay. Um, Either Casperson Beach or Turtle Beach, which Turtle Beach would be cheating because it's the south side of Siesta Key.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Favorite song from an independent trap rock artist?
1: Oh, I really love um, Gone by um, Ben Hammond and John Patty.
0: Okay. Uh, What is uh, a favorite book or movie that you've read or watched recently that you think everybody else should go check out?
1: Oh, my goodness. Uh, Shoot. Hmm. I don't watch a lot of TV. Um, Okay, pass. I'll come back to that one. Okay. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> uh, one album from any artist, any genre that you think everyone should go check out.
1: Long Story Short by Peter and Brendan Mayer.
0: Ooh, good one there.
1: That's a good one.
0: Bob Marley or Kenny Chesney? Bob Marley. Nobody has gone with Kenny Chesney yet.
1: <laughs> and Kenny Chesney's from Knoxville. <laughs> sorry, Kenny. I
0: hadn't, even thought, I hadn't even thought about that, that he's... Kitty's
1: yeah. music just is like really across the board, so I'd be I'd have to be specific. But Bob Marley has like one style, so I know what I'm getting into. <laughs> yeah. Uh
0: If there was any living artist that you could write or record with, who would it be?
1: Living artist. Yes. Um. um Kitty Steadman. <laughs>
0: hey, you gotta you gotta give it more thought than that.
1: Lady Edge. <laughs> no okay um does it have to be like a singer songwriter person
0: no that's Probably. fine write record produce and i mean you're you're more than just a songwriter singer so however okay. you want to collaborate with this person you can do it okay.
1: i would love to down the road at some point collaborate with eric erdman um but i also would like to do a percussion project with giovanni Hidalgo. he's one of my coaches but um, he's always so busy. We don't get a chance to collaborate. So is that cheating
0: or is that okay? No, that's that's not. See, now we okay. now we can hold you to it. We have it on record. Oh, so five man. years from now, we can be like, Melanie, why haven't you made it happen yet?
1: So, You're right.
0: <laughs> this, is, this is not like you said you wanted to record with James Taylor. You know, like this is somebody you already know. So
1: yeah, it's true.
0: Accountability here. <laughs> All right. Here's the big question. If you could uh, create a Mount Rushmore of independent trap rock artists, who would be on it?
1: Um because I wanted their faces on it or because they are like
0: Because they are the four people that you think best ones. represent the community and the genre of trap right.
1: Okay. I would say uh Jerry Diaz Donnie Brewer.
0: Um Mm
1: -hmm. tall paul
0: tall paul
1: i got one more right one
0: more um heather vidal Ooh, i like that one that's i haven't heard that one yet he's a leader there you go and uh last question if you could add one more face to that but it has to be somebody who is not a musician somebody who organizes events radio hosts anything like that who would it be
1: it's cheating if I say you like that, that just not. not allowed. Like, it, I am not that? allowed. Yes. <laughs> um, um not a musician. Dang it. <laughs> what about Eric Babin?
0: Eric Babin, there you go. E yeah. B.
1: He's been really helping push a lot of these, uh, the quarantine concert. Like he makes lists every day of who's performing to help out. Yep. It's insane the amount of work he puts in.
0: I'll be honest with you. This is the sixth interview I've done so far for this project for Trap Rock 101. And you're the first person to say Eric Babbitt. And I've been shocked. It's taken that long. So no way. Yep.
1: He's been, I mean, like, literally, I would have given up by now. I would have been like, y'all need to do this on your own. I cannot <laughs> <laughs> figure your stuff out.
0: Well, there you go. Melanie House, Mount Rushmore, is Jerry Diaz, Donnie Brewer, Paul Bobble, Heather Vidal, and Eric Babin. So. Eric Babin. Well, Mel, thank you so much for doing this. I love talking to you. Um, glad we got to hang out a few weeks ago, and – uh I don't know when I'm going to see you again now. Like, I don't everything, know. Everything is just, yeah, so up in the air. So, but, uh, i uh,
1: supposed to come back to Texas, but I don't know if it's happening.
0: Yeah, I, I, we're going to have to figure that out in the next week or two. So anyway, folks, uh, thanks for checking out the Trap Rock 101 podcast. And don't forget to visit Melanie Howe and everyone else from Drop Dead Dangerous at wearedropbeddangerous.com.
1: Thank you so much for having me,
0: John. Mel- Melanie, as you said, she's all over Facebook, Instagram. Instagram is probably the best place to really experience Melanie Howe, I think.
1: Instagram so is a little hidden gem. It is. So
0: <laughs> check it out. And uh, thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thank you so much, Mel. you yeah.